Philippians. If you want to turn there with me, we are Philippians chapter 3. And as you can tell from Isaiah reading the uh, passage this morning, we've moved on a section to verse 12. <clears throat> so Philippians 3 and verse 12. I'll just pray and then we'll, uh, we'll kick in. Father, we, we thank you that for those of us who have trusted in your Son, that you haven't left us alone, but you've sent the paraclete, the one who comes alongside, the encourager, this Holy Spirit, to be with us and in us. That you would be in us through him. And as we study this day, the word that he inspired, that he kept true, that he brought life to, may he impact upon our hearts where he dwells this morning. May this not be some intellectual exercise where we learn things that we didn't know before, but may it be a spiritual transforming where we become more than we were, where you continue to do your work in our hearts, in our lives. And may our hearts be ready. May our hearts be humble, ready to receive, knowing that we get stuff wrong, knowing that we have our blind spots. May we be open this morning to you changing us, our minds, the way we see things that we might be changed and be ever more like your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. To me... These words are some of the most encouraging words in the whole scripture. And for us to understand why and for us to understand what Paul means by this, we need to flick back a little bit. We need to get our context. In chapter 3, Paul has warned us of the Judaizers, the false teachers who were coming into the church, trying to get people to believe in Christ plus, Christ plus something else. You have to do something to be able to receive Christ, a false gospel that he is very opposed to and he makes it very clear in strong language. And in refuting that false gospel, he speaks of how there's no basis for us to have any confidence or any hope in our flesh, in our bodies, in our accomplishments in this life, in this world. Doesn't matter how good you are, how religious you are, what your background is, what good deeds you've done, what you've accomplished, none of it matters. And Paul says, hey, if anybody, if anybody amongst us has any basis to say, hey, you know what, I'm pretty good, then Paul says it's me. And he goes through the list of all of those things that in that society, in that religious community, in the eyes even of the false teachers, would have put Paul on a pedestal. The things that would have made him to be the one who was good enough. And he takes all of that stuff and he says, you know what, it's all a bunch of dung. It's excrement. 
It's waste. It's rubbish. It's dross. It's useless. It's worse than useless. It's a distraction. All of these accomplishments are absolutely nothing. Why? Well, he says, because of the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Paul said, he, it's as if he's saying, I had all of these things that I was clinging on to, that I thought were valuable. And then I saw Christ on that Damascus road, and I just let go of it all to grasp hold of him. And so, he says, in, uh, I'm picking up reading halfway through verse 8. He says, For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as dung, as rubbish, as excrement, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. I don't want what the, those things offer. I want what Christ offers. And what does Christ offer him? He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Christ faithfully kept the law so that those of us, all of us, unable to keep the law can be seen to be righteous through our faith in him. That he lived the perfect life that he who knew no sin became sin for our sakes. That the, the wrath of God was poured upon him. That was our wrath. He was punished for our sins. And then the righteousness that he had was given to us that we might be declared righteous before God. And then Paul goes on to say, that I may know him. And as I said to you last time, there is this shift where Paul says, look, letting go of this and getting hold of Christ is about salvation. It's about being saved. I'm not going to trust in these things for salvation. I'm going to trust in Christ alone. And that's the warning with the false doctrine. It's like, you want to hang on to this stuff and trust in this stuff, then you're not trusting in Christ. Trust in Christ alone. And then he says in this next part that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. He's talking now about as a Christian, he continues to let go of those other things. He continues to trust in Christ alone because Christ through him, by the power of the Spirit, is going to enable him to live in that power. And so the goal for us as Christians is to cling on to Christ, the surpassing worth of Christ, that we might know him and the power of his resurrection, that's through the Spirit, and may share in his sufferings. If the king was worthy of suffering, then his servants who follow him are surely too. And so Paul says this is the Christian life, getting to know Jesus better, getting to know the power of Christ within us, and learning to walk in the sufferings that are ours because of our faith. And ultimately, he says, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul speaks of 
this sanctification, us becoming more and more like Jesus. We've been declared righteous. I don't know about you, but I'm reminded every day of my unrighteousness in how I live and how I think and how I speak. And so there is this, this paradox, if you like, where God sees us as righteous and yet we're not that we're covered by the blood of Christ and we have his righteousness, but we're still learning to live in it and walk in it. But then Paul says there's this final thing where one day we will be resurrected as he's been resurrected, as we sung this morning. And we will be glorified and God's work will be complete and will be without sin. And so Paul, in talking of all of that, he says, not that I've already obtained this, nor am already perfect. And you know what? We need those verses. When Paul says, you know what? Everything else in life is done. Everything else in life is flushable. Apart from Christ. I see that and I'm like, yeah, I want to be there. I want, to, I want to view life that way daily. I'm committed to it. But I don't do it. I, I keep falling short of it. I keep getting distracted. Just, there I am looking at Christ. I'm going to look at you, Lord. You and you alone. And suddenly I'm there. I'm distracted by these other things in life and in the world. And when we look at Paul in those verses in isolation, we think that he is this, this majestic super apostle, just above us all. Paul was a man with sin in his body that he fought daily like the rest of us. Paul got things wrong. The books of the Bible that he wrote are without error, not because he made no errors, but because for those particular books, God prevented him from making errors by the power of the Spirit. That's the miracle. But sometimes because Paul wrote so much of the Bible, because he, he has such a high position, we think of him as, as being this perfect guy. Get your head around this for a minute. Paul's first letter, depending on your theological perspective, was either 1 Thessalonians or Galatians. Scholars debate. But those books, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, Galatians, are his first three books that he wrote. Do you think that the guy who wrote those three books was exactly the same as the guy who wrote 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, his last three books? I sincerely hope not. Because if he was exactly the same, then where is sanctification? Where is God taking Paul and changing him? You say, but, but weren't those first books without error? Absolutely they were without error. But it's a miracle that any of them were without error because God inspired them. It's not because of who Paul was. And you see a change in him over the years, some of which we're going to be talking about in our Tuesday night studies. And so Paul is saying, look, I haven't attained this life yet. I fall, I fail, I mess up. 
I'm not perfect. I'm not yet glorified. I haven't received my resurrection body. Sin is still in my bones, in my cells, in my DNA. He didn't know that, but that's essentially what he's saying when he talks about sin being in our flesh. And so it is that Paul is not yet there. And so in the first half of verse 12, those of us who have maybe felt disheartened by the previous verses, excited, motivated, but maybe a bit disheartened, we can take a sigh of relief. Oh, Paul, Paul hadn't quite nailed it yet either. He wasn't quite there. That's great. But you take that breath, get your strength together, because the next half of the verse says, but I press on. I press on. I'm not already taken this. I've not already received this. I'm not already there. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to press on. And it's interesting, in Greek literature, in my version here, we have, I have um, obtained and then press on. Other versions will say received and uh, grasped and, and what have you. But these two words often go together in Greek literature. You know, in, in ancient Greek literature, they would talk about how, um, you know, somebody had got something and you, you would put, the chariots would pursue them, you know, this idea of getting hold of something that you don't yet have, pursuing it, chasing after it. I've not yet received this, but you know what? I'm going to go get it. And, and that's very much in harmony with what Paul was saying earlier in the letter, where he talked about how we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Because it's God who works in us. So we understand that God is the one doing the sanctifying work, but we don't sit back, put our feet up, and just relax and say, okay, God, off you go. We press on. And as we press on... God does his work so that the glory is his and not ours. But we have to press on. Does that sound a little bit contradictory to you? Is that a struggle? There's a wonderful story in the Old Testament where one of David's warriors would fight against the Philistines with a sword, or Philistines as you say here, with a sword. And he would fight and he would fight and he would fight and he fought all day. And he, he miraculously slew, and I don't remember the exact number, but, but many, many Philistines. Here is one man with one sword who is slaying all of his Philistines and defending the land and defending Israel. And, and it was completely miraculous. And the Bible says that after he finished, they had to pry the sword from his hand because he grasped it so hard. And he fought so hard that his hand was sealed around that sword. Did he, was he a better swordsman? No, no, it was a miracle. God did a miracle. <laughs> One guy slew hundreds of Philistines. It was a miracle. But they had to pry the sword from his hand. That's Paul at the end of his life when he says, I've fought the fight. I've run the race. I've done everything that I can do. I've sought to attain it. I've fought for, for holiness. 
I've worked my way to perfection. But every step of the way, the work was God and not me. That's the picture being painted here. And Paul says, look, I'm not there, but I'm pressing on to make it my own, to lay hold of it. I'm pressing on to, to get it because Christ laid hold of me. Christ made me his own. That's a wonderful picture. I like the ESV translation here. Most translations say, I, I want to take hold of it because Christ took hold of me. And the ESV says, I want to make it my own because Christ made me his own. You get the idea either way. What he's saying is this, I am Christ's. I was trusting in all of these other things. And I saw the glorious, surpassing worth of Jesus. And everything else became worthless in an instant. And that glorious Christ, despite my sin, despite my misunderstanding, despite me being an enemy, that glorious Christ took me for his own. You imagine how that felt for Paul. When, when Christ appears to Paul on the Damascus Road, his first words are, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And yet, by the time that conversation is finished, Paul is the disciple. He's saved. He's redeemed. He's righteous by the one who had to introduce himself as the one being persecuted. That's just amazing to me. Christ literally laid hold of Paul, grabbed him, said, Oi, you, you're mine. I've got a job for you. You're killing me, you're persecuting me, you're destroying my church, my body. That's fine, now you're mine. And he laid hold of him, he grabbed him, he says, you are mine. And so Paul says, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay hold of my mission like God laid hold of me for his mission in me. Christ laid hold of me. He took me because he had a purpose. So I'm going to pursue that purpose with, with every ounce of energy and being that I have. Unless we think, lest we think that that is somehow unique to Paul, I refer you back, if I need at all, to Ephesians chapter 1. That God the Father chose us before the foundation of the world. That he sent his Son to redeem us by his blood that we might be declared righteous and redeemed from sin. And then he gave us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee that he will complete his work and the empowerment within us that we might live holy lives, that we may have a hope that is to come in the future where God's work will be complete in us. And then he says that we are saved not by works, but by faith. But we're saved for works that he prepared beforehand. What does beforehand refer to? 
before the foundation of the world, he chose us. He prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. Paul's situation and circumstance is no different than ours. God, before the foundation of the world, says, I'm going to have Paul. I've got a job specifically for Paul. I'm going to, I've chosen him. I'm going to redeem him by the blood of my son. And I'm going to give him my Holy Spirit with the gifts that that entails that he might be empowered to accomplish what it is that I, God, want to accomplish through Paul. And Paul says, that's pretty amazing. I'm going to pursue that with all my life and all my being and all my strength. The same is true for us. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us, each one of us individually. He redeemed us by the blood of his son at a point in time. When we exercise faith in his son, he saves us and he gives us his Holy Spirit to empower us to do the work that he chose for us individually to do before the foundation of the world. It's exactly the same. And we need to pursue it with every ounce of our being, with our every breath to the very last breath. Are you hindered in some way? Are you handicapped in some way? Are you, are you limited in some way? Well, join the club, we all are. None of us are perfect, none of us think well enough, none of us are clever enough, none of us are capable enough, and every single one of us have limitations in our lives. And you know what? God knew those limitations before he chose us. There are no excuses, there are no exceptions. We are going to have to press on. Now he says in verse 13, brothers and sisters... The word here in the Greek implies men and women, each one of us individually. He says, I don't consider that I've made it my own. And so he, he's essentially repeating here. He says, I'm not here. I haven't attained it. I'm pressing on. I'm trying to, but I haven't yet done it, he says. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And all he's doing here is saying the same thing, but he's expanding it. And so we'll look at that expansion, those extra details together now. So again, he says he's not there yet. So he's and again, he says he's pressing on. But this is what he does. He says, I'm going to do this one thing. And it's clever how it's worded, because what he's saying, he says, look, I'm going to do this. He says, but I'm going to do this one thing. Here's what I'm going to do. And he's got our attention. Okay, what is it, Paul? What are you going to do? And he says, this is what I'm going to do. He says, and the way it's written in the Greek, it's, it's like, I'm going to do this and also, we say in English. They're, they're waiting for a couple of things. He's going to, the one thing he's going to do is press on, but he's going to do it in two ways. And this is how he's going to do it. He's going to forget what lies behind and he's going to strain forward for what lies ahead. Guys, we need to leave the past in the past. That goes for good stuff and it goes for bad stuff. We, when Jenny and I were away at the... Uh, uh, a worship conference a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Keith Getty, a couple of his songs we sung this morning, 
He's a very well-known modern hymn writer, songwriter. He said something very profound. He said, we start today. We can do nothing else. Or words to that effect. That is a thoroughly biblical concept. You, you can't do anything else other than say, right, now, this moment, today, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to pursue the upward call of Christ. That's what I'm going to do today. The mistakes that you've made in your life, don't let them hold you back. The good that you've done, don't let that hold you back either. No resting on your laurels. No, oh, well, I've done lots of good. I think this is my time of rest now. No, 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 no. We're, every day we're pressing on. We're pressing on. We're pressing on. If anybody could hark back to past failings, it could be the man who referred to himself as the chief of sinners. If anyone could look back to past glory, it's the man who said that if anyone has reason to have confidence in the flesh, it's me. And Paul says, I don't do that. I don't look back on the good and I don't look back on the bad. He says, I forget what lies behind. Now, I, I'm well aware that we learn from our past. Whether it's in the broad sense as students of history, or whether it's in a narrow sense of understanding our own individual lives. Sometimes things happen to us and they affect us now, and sometimes it's helpful to understand these things. I'm not saying it's not. But I think there's a line that we cross. There's a line that we sometimes cross where we live in the past, and it affects our present. And that's the line we don't want to cross. Paul says, forgetting what's behind. Straining to what lies ahead. You know, uh, years ago I read a wonderful book, and excuse me for my, my uh, bias here, showing, talking of running and of British runners, but the, back in the 80s when I was growing up, there was the great rivalry between Sebastian Coe and Steve Ovette. And uh, the, the issue, if you were British, wasn't would they win medals, the question was which one would get gold. And they came here to Los Angeles in 1984, to uh, compete one against another as they'd done in Moscow in 1980. And they had these, these battles one against another. And in one of these Olympics, there was the race where Sebastian Coe was supposed to be the 800-meter specialist. And Steve Ovette was the 1,500-meter specialist. But they were doing both events. And in the first race was the, the 800, and Sebastian Coe was supposed to win it. And he lost. And Steve Ovette won. And so in the next race, well, Steve Ovette's won the one that's not his favorite. Now he's presumably definitely going to win his favorite race. He didn't. Sebastian Coe won. 
And when they talk about it in this biography that I read of, of the events, what happened in, in Steve Ovet's mind was, is that he was going to those games to get a gold medal. And in the first race, which was not his best race, he won a gold medal. And it's interesting as you watch the race, he could have easily gotten silver. I think he got a bronze in the, in the, in the second race. It was like, I got my gold. The, the glory that he had in the previous race led him to not get the same glory in the following race. For Sebastian Coe, everything rested on that second race. It didn't matter if you put three brick walls in front of him. No one was going to get to that finish line before him. In the words of his father and coach, in the first race he ran like an idiot. Forgot all the, the rules and all everything. He just, he just in, in the moment, he messed up. But if he focused on the fact that he messed up, that tension, that stress would have affected him. He put it behind him, he forgot about it. Now there's one race left, let's do that. So in both of those guys, one, one was distracted by his glory and the other one had to not be distracted by his failings. That's us in life. There is, there is one race, there is one event, there is one life. Have you wasted a whole bunch of your life? Tough. There's nothing you can do about it. It's over. It's gone. What are you going to do today? Whom will you serve? Yourself or Christ? And so we strain forward to what lies ahead. He says, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Guys, here's the prize, okay? The prize is that one day we're going to be in the presence of God in glorified bodies without sin. If your body's not working very well, maybe you're sick, maybe your body's, you know, not what you would like it to be, let me tell you, the fact that you're going to have a glorified body that works perfectly is the least of your excitement. It's the fact that your body will no longer be tainted by sin that is the real excitement. And that is what we're working towards. You say, well, isn't that guaranteed? Oh, yeah, it's guaranteed, but we're working towards it. Isn't that something that's given and not earned? Absolutely, but it's the price. You see, Paul does not simply say, well, Christ will accomplish this, so I'll do nothing. He says, I'm straining, I'm working, I'm pressing on, I'm moving forward, I'm trying to lay hold of it. I'm doing everything that I can do to obtain what I know is guaranteed. Again, it's that paradox, isn't it? Christ will one day bring all things to completion. But our job is to do everything that we can to press towards that conclusion. That's what Paul is talking about. And let it be clear 
Paul elsewhere speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 about the Bema seat, the reward seat, traditionally called the judgment seat of Christ. It's a different word than a normal word for judgment, hence reward. It's the place where the athletes in the ancient games would go to receive their wreath, to receive their awards. It's the equivalent of the modern day podium. And when we stand before Christ, Paul says that everything that we've done that we should not have done, is burnt up through the fire, like wood, hay, and stubble. Every mistake we've made, every sin we've committed, is covered by the blood of Christ. But the interesting thing about that reward seat, that podium, is that he also says that every good that we've done will be purified through the fire. So when I do a good deed, when you do a good deed, let's not be naive. Every good that we do is still tainted by sin. It can't be any other way. But Christ will take that good and refine it, that we would be rewarded for that good. And Paul understood that. That's why he uses the word prize, an athletic term. I'm going to work as hard as I can for the reward. And in one sense, the reward is the same. It's the glorified body. It's the presence of God. It's the, it's the glorification that comes at the end. But every step of the way, there are rewards that will never be removed. What does that look like practically? I have no idea. I'm not even going to pretend to you that I understand. Paul speaks in terms of gold being purified. Does that mean that we'll be wealthier in the kingdom if we've done more good? Perhaps, I don't know. Is it an analogy of something that we couldn't possibly understand because we don't know what it's going to be like? Possibly, I don't know. But I know that the kingdom life will go on in, in, a, in a way that we do understand to some degree, and I do know that God will give us rewards that will have value to us in the kingdom. But you know, we've got to press on anyway, because whatever form it takes is going to be something of value to us. But you see, what is interesting to me is that for Paul, the prize is not simply about getting something for himself. He calls it the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, the upward call, I think, is a nice phrase because the call is what God does, right? There's Paul on the Damascus Road on his way to kill a few Christians for the glory of God, as he saw it. And God shows up in the man Christ Jesus. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And as I've said to you before, I believe that Paul in that moment sees the same vision that Isaiah and Daniel had seen. Daniel saw one who was like a son of man, a human in appearance, who is given all authority and a kingdom that will never end. Isaiah saw that glory, but Daniel saw that the one receiving that glory was like a son of man. Paul got a little bit more than Daniel did. Paul saw who that man was, 
That man was Jesus. And he says, Paul, why are you, why are you persecuting me? And there, Paul has his call. He has his call on his life. But the call was not something that happened that day that then stopped. The call wasn't something that was isolated to that moment. The call was something that began in that moment. And the call is an upward one where Paul was taken from that place as a persecutor of the church. He was taken from that place and he was lifted up. And when Paul writes this, his lifting up is not yet complete. And so he's pressing on. He's working. He's continuing. Because that call continues. Have you completed God's work that he saved you for? There's a simple way to know the answer to that. Try to take a breath. If you can, it's not done yet. If you're still breathing, or, or, or here's another test. Is your heart still beating? Is there blood still going through your veins? Then the work's not done. You're still heading upwards. You're not there yet. The work isn't complete. And so Paul talks of this upward call, and it's God's call. God has called us. He did it. That's the Ephesians 1, the Father chose us before the foundation of the world. But it's accomplished in Christ. And so for Paul, this upward call, this prize that comes with the call, isn't something he's doing because he's like, oh, goody, prizes. It's because, again, he's seen the surpassing worth of Christ. It's because nothing else matters anymore. This is his goal. This is what he's pursuing. This is what he's accomplishing. This is what he's chasing after. Because there's nothing else that's worth chasing after. Christ is better than all of that. And the devil seeks to distract us. To tell us that we're missing out. Constantly, there's that voice in our ear telling us, if we pursue Christ, we're going to miss out. And of course, like all the devil's lies, it's a half-truth. Because of course, if we do pursue Christ, we are going to miss out. It is going to be harder, it is going to be worse. Paul's not saying otherwise. He's already said that we're going to have the power of his resurrection and we're going to share in his sufferings. Sometimes not following Christ is a great way to avoid suffering. A wonderful way to avoid suffering. But in another sense, it's a lie. The scripture says in the Psalms that God withholds no good thing from the one who walks uprightly. The one whose walk is blameless. If we live as Christ has called us to live, if we pursue the call, there's nothing good 
that we are ever going to miss out on. Ever. He said, well, didn't you just say that we can avoid some bad stuff by not following Christ? I didn't say you could avoid bad stuff, I said you could avoid suffering. And this is the dilemma. Are we going to be distracted by what the world says is good? Because God, when he says we'll miss out on nothing good, it's by his determination of what is good. Which brings us back to the dung. To skubala. Brings us back to that word that Paul used in verse 8 that was so shocking and so jarring that the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would use a word that was essentially the colloquial equivalent of us saying crap. It brings us back to that because what this all revolves around, us pressing forwards, us pushing on, us trying to attain, us trying to lay hold, it all revolves around the basis of worth. Are we going to be distracted by things that the world, that the enemy says are of value? Or are we going to, with Paul, say, it's all done? Do we see Christ alone as having value? And are we prepared to let go of all else to pursue him? Friends, that's a question that we can only ask ourselves. I pray that we do, and I pray that we answer correctly. Let's pray. Father, I pray that like Paul, here today in all our imperfection, we might forget what's behind, strain forward to what is ahead, and to lay hold of everything that you have for us to let go of the dung that distracts us and to make Christ our everything. Amen.